This is Fair and Square, a podcast from Hudson Sandler. Hello, I'm Adam Batstone and welcome to this first edition of Fair and Square. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Andrew Hayes, who's managing partner of Hudson Sandler, and our special guest, Kirsty Bashforth. It's fair to say that Kirsty has an impressive CV, including a long stint at BP, where as Group Head of Organisational Effectiveness, she sought to completely overhaul corporate culture following the Deepwater Horizon disaster, as well as being CEO at her own consultancy, Key5, where she advises corporate organisations. She's also a non-executive director at Keir Group, Serco and PZ Cousins. And among all that, she's managed to find time to write a book as well, Culture Shift, which aims to help organisations change their culture without resorting to the hassle and expense of hiring management consultants. But before we speak to Kirsty, I should start by asking Andrew to explain a little bit more about Hudson Sandler, what Hudson Sandler is, what you do, and why you've decided that a podcast would be a good idea. Well, Hudson Sandler is a strategic communication consultancy based in London, advising many of the world's leading businesses. About half of those clients are based overseas, about half in the UK. And we were delighted to um, invite Kirsty onto our first podcast to talk about her experiences BP and her experiences of culture and organisational effectiveness, because culture is absolutely central to our business. And our ethos is built on three pillars, one culture, one team, diverse thinking. So a lot of the themes Kirsty has explored in her book about how you harness culture, deliver strategy, play directly how we work in our business and how we advise our clients to develop their businesses. Very good. And tell me about the name, Fair and Square. There's a reason for that. Well, yeah, there are two reasons. First of all, we're looking to have accurate, honest and straightforward discussions, which is what our business and our culture is all about. But secondly, it's also a note to our heritage. We've been based for over 30 years in Smithfield, for a historic part of London. For 25 years of that, we're based in Cloth Fair. And given the growth of the business, we've just moved around the corner into Charterhouse Square to take Hence, your pick. Fair and square. Correct. Excellent. OK, that, so that seems like a compelling case for podcasts. Kirsty, mm. I see from your Twitter profile, you list your interests as the Isle of Man, Ireland, Yorkshire and chocolate. Where do you stand on podcasts? Somewhere close behind chocolate. <laughs> I think, but we'll never beat chocolate. But you're a fan of podcasts. I'm a huge fan of podcasts, particularly things like Brexit cast, tail enders, all sorts of things. Love them. And tell me, in the work that you've been doing most recently advising businesses, to what degree have they adopted podcasts as a way of communicating both internally and externally? A mix. It depends sometimes on the sorts of businesses they are and also what the leadership is up for in terms of the way they communicate. So so mixed, not universal yet. Andrew, you touched on the point there about what you see as being Hudson Sandler's culture. Do you want to just, through Kirsty's experience, uh, talk about how you've evolved that culture, how you might want to change it if indeed you do? Our business is built on bringing very talented people together from different disciplines and encouraging them to collaborate together. So we do everything we can to remove any barriers to collaboration. 
So we have, as a one-profit centre, nobody has a revenue target. We share leads. We do everything that is right to live for the client without any barriers. So we work at that very hard. It's very important to how we operate. It drives um, a lot of exciting new clients coming to the business, some fantastically long client relationships, some of which go back 30 years, which we're very, very proud of. So culture is central to our business, and um, we continue to look at it and we evolve it. And most importantly, Adam... We like to have a lot of fun whilst we work. And I understand Kirsty was at an event at Hudson Sandler this morning. So just take us through uh, with Kirsty what some of the key issues were which cropped up from that discussion this morning. Well, I think we had a very interesting chat this morning with some of our clients, some of our prospective clients, journalists, think tanks. And what we were talking about was the relationship between implementing strategy and culture. And Kirsty, it was very interesting what you had to say about how getting the culture right for your strategy is absolutely critical to delivery. And I think that was one of the most important themes we touched on this morning. Yeah, it was, Andrew. And there's three things that I that I hold as fundamental in any culture work. And the first one is that um, culture and strategy need to be equal partners. Culture is not an add-on. Mm. Strategy would never be considered an add-on, but strategy is only delivered by people mm. and the way they behave, decide and act. So culture and strategy need to be equal partners. The second one is that they need to be aligned the culture needs to be lined up to deliver the strategy if you want and need an innovative strategy uh, that's based on disruption say a culture that's only focused on consistency isn't going to get you there and the third thing is that if you are focusing on culture which everybody should in business um, treating it as a project in a typical project management way is not going to get you the shift and the focus that you need so three main things I always hold dear in any culture work. Yeah, and I think what also came out, and I read the book, and it's, I should say, it's actually rooted in your experiences. This is not an academic study. This is you actually out in the field working with corporates, working in organisations, was this word alignment, which keeps coming out um, across the book. There's no such thing as a right culture. It's a culture that's aligned to what the organisation is trying to achieve. And I think that was um, very interesting brought to life by what you said about Uber, for instance. Yeah, a lot of people always start with, so who has the best culture? And I always come back with, well, every culture needs to be unique for what the business is trying to deliver. And so there's never a best or a worst versus others. Mm. It's a best or a worst versus what you're trying to deliver. Mm. Um, and each culture is is right for the strategy and that needs to change over time. So if I, if I think about Uber, they had a very disruptive culture because that's what they were trying to do in the market and mm. it worked brilliantly. But once they became big enough and above the radar and were coming up against the establishment in the mm. business world, their culture was still very much disruptive, personified, almost magnified by their CEO. And you saw in the end the CEO had to go mm -hmm. because they weren't able to change to match the strategy. And now you hear almost a lot less from Uber in the marketplace as mm. they have grown, matured and established. And the, the CEO that's now there has adjusted the culture to fit that. So it's a really, a really powerful example and quite a recent one for me. And it's also interesting, the discussion we had about monocultures and how cultures need to flex across organisations. It's not one culture fits all, depending on the organisation. Yeah, I, I line this up with the business model. So if a business model is is everything needs to be consistent and standard across the whole the whole piece and nothing's different, then your culture will need to be more mono mm. to deliver that. If it's one way to performance manage people, one way to recruit people, one way to incentivise people, then the culture needs to be the same. But if on the other end of a business model you have 
there may be a holding company, it just buys lots of companies that don't need to be related, then you you shouldn't have a monoculture mm. because by very nature, all the different businesses are, are totally different and everywhere in between. So again, it's about alignment and consistency, this time with your business model. And we t- we're talking about some of the big corporate crises of recent years. We You obviously worked with BP after the Deepwater Horizon situation. There have been many others since have been well publicised. But we had a very interesting discussion about early warning signals mm. because in hindsight, people always say, well, of course, it was ultimately the culture. So what were the early early warning signs we should be looking for to see whether our culture is going wrong and could lead to a massive failure? So the first thing I would do is look 360 around internal, external, top of the organisation, middle of the organisation, right at the front line. Mm. So don't prioritise signals from any angle. But it's never one signal that will tell Mm. you. It's a number of signals. You might look in a particular part of the business and see, let's say, engagement levels have dropped. People just aren't responding to surveys. Um, At the same time, you might have more absences or the safety performance might have dropped. And if you see a confluence of these, what may seem small signals and you think we can fix them, Mm. but if you see a confluence of them in a certain area, that might be an indication, an early warning signal that something's not right in your culture. So it's never always the big signals about the outcomes. I always look at the leading indicators inside the system um, that's, that start to tell you. If you think of it like a car, it's when does the warning signal go on? And you might say, oh, well, it went on, but it went off again. Well, it's probably not fixed itself. It's just gone quiet for a little while. Uh, and you wouldn't ignore that. Well, you might ignore that, but eventually a car will break down. And look at a failure of culture leading to um, corporate crises. But then we did have a discussion about cultures that are really successfully aligned mm. to delivering strategy. Yeah, and I think the first thing I would say is it doesn't matter of the scale of the company um, or the organisation. This is about general alignment. So if I take a really big example and an international example and a smaller national UK example to illustrate, and this is about consistency of focus of culture, not just the alignment and that moment. So Internationally, a big, huge company, IBM. Now, once again, I want to preface this. I'm not saying their culture is perfect or right. I'm not saying it isn't. But having worked with them and around them for a number of years, I think their consistency of focus in their culture over a number of years is what's impressed me and their simplicity of their messages. So in 2003, they had a big 72-hour conversation across all of their employees around the world. Um, And out of that emerged their three clear values. And I have observed and experienced them weaving those values into the way they talk, the way they decide, the way they act, uh, inside and outside. And I've I've been very impressed with that focus. So I'm not saying their culture is better or worse than anybody else's. I'm saying mm. it's it seems very aligned purposefully and very consistently focused upon. A smaller um, UK national example would be Timpson. Uh, if anybody follows James Timpson on Twitter, you'll see the way he tweets out about how he makes decisions is absolutely personifying the company's business decisions and and when you go into their shops, the experience you get. And I see that consistency all the way through uh, as a customer, as a consumer. And the leader of any business casts the biggest shadow across a culture, positive or negative. And, And there's a great example of somebody who's leading from the front in the focus that culture is really important to deliver great business results and they continue to grow. So just picking up from that, and one thing I was really interested in when I read the book was about the 
experience you've had dealing with both larger and smaller concerns. So at the point where someone hands you the poison challenge, they Kirsty, go away and fix this. It's an enormous multinational. Are there the same issues for something at that scale or if you're dealing with a rather smaller concern where perhaps everyone knows each other's name? Yeah, so first thing I would say is um, a principle there about changing the culture. I would always advocate the culture needs to be changed from within by everybody. So the first point is it's never one person changing it. Think of a conductor of an orchestra or an air traffic controller. They are not playing the music, they are not flying the planes, but they are ensuring that the environment lines up such that the outcome is right. And that's how I think of somebody focusing on the culture. When it comes to big or small and getting started, the situation that the company is in and the mindset of the leadership also um, matters to get going and know the scale of the task. doesn't matter whether it's a big company or a small company. If people don't see the need for it, it's difficult to get going. And, the, and, and engaging the top leadership so that they really know this is why we're doing it is very important. And, and don't skimp on the time of that because one person at the top may be clear but their team around them, you can't just assume that they're all in the same place. The bigger the organisation, it can become very fragmented. And uh, I would say the thing to do is engage a number of people around the organisation. Never think it's cascade and that's going to fix it. At BP, we engaged a whole load of volunteers. We asked people to sign up, to join up, to just take part. And we ended up with 1,300 people across the 80 countries who did something and it doesn't mean everybody has to do everything but people can do something and some people had more fixed roles and some people had more um, variable roles but uh, so the bigger the organization be clear about everybody in and inviting everybody in the smaller the organization almost the more magnified the leader can be because they can get their arms around it. I mean, we're talking about very big organisations, mm. looking at one of the biggest in the world, Amazon. I'm interested in the relationship between vision and culture. And Amazon talks about its vision to be the Earth's most customer-centric company. How is that relevant to culture on a warehouse shop floor? Ooh, that's a, that's a challenging question, isn't it? And if we could find the immediate answer to that, then there'd be sort of a nirvana place in business. I, I think of that example of the three people building a wall. Um, and one person is putting bricks on top of bricks, one person is feeding their family, and one person is building a pyramid. They're all doing the same thing, but they have different senses of meaning. I do see that the more simple, impactful, that a company can get the message out there of, what are we trying to deliver as this company and how can everybody play their part and how does their role fit in? The more productivity, the more engagement, the more retention you can get. You won't get everybody. You'll never get everybody because some people do come to work just to do the task. Some people do come to work purely to feed the family and some people do come to work for a higher purpose. And you can't assume everybody wants to come for the same reason and you can't assume that everybody will be getting the same enjoyment. But if you can try to get that message out about purpose as powerfully, as impactfully, as relevant to anybody's job as possible, you will release more value in the, across the organisation. And that's a, a huge challenge that I think never ends for leaders at all levels of the organisation. How do I translate that big high purpose into motivating my team so they know how they fit and the value they are adding? And if the, at the end of the day some of those colleagues don't buy into the vision or the culture, some tough decisions need to be made. Sometimes. I typically find that a third of people are always 
bought in naturally to anything that's happening and change and they've got extra energy. A third of people are potentially more cynical and sceptical and been here before, done that, it won't work, they're just the new shiny leader. And then there's the people in the middle who are quite passive and will follow if they see enough evidence. So your challenge is the people who are a bit sceptical, do they need to go? No, because you will never get everybody who's really enthusiastic. But if they're carrying on doing their job and they've always had a mindset of, I'm a bit grumpy, but I'll go along with it. But it's the disruptively um, challenging people that you would hope would choose to leave. The trick to getting your culture going towards your strategy is, is to really engage the people who are more passive and are waiting a bit and their productivity may not be what it could be. But if you can get them moving and trusting and seeing that there is movement from people who they respect, then that's the real win. And of course, this whole area is becoming more and more regulated, which is, I think, a very interesting development. You're now Companies are now being required to manage culture in the way we're talking about. Yeah, there's been a number of developments regulatorily and um, pressure-wise, which I'm obviously quite thrilled about because I think it's very important. The UK Corporate Governance Code in 2018... Um, increased the pressure, quite rightly, on boards to oversee culture more actively and more proactively. Uh, And uh, things like employee voice being required on boards to have a more active look is a great, I think, a great innovation there. There is also increased pressure from the investment community uh, who are taking a look at all aspects of culture. Now, that's not uniform and it's not consistent, but you do see more um, investment houses and more shareholder groups really taking a look at that and starting to vote with their dollars, their pounds, their euros. And talk about pounds and pence, how do you measure the return on investment? I mean, when you went, when you took on your project at BP, that must have been an investment of tens and tens of millions of pounds. How do people measure the benefit of this investment to implementing their strategies? So, first thing is one of the pitfalls. People think shifting culture, focusing on culture costs a lot of money. It doesn't, because it's about everybody's habits. Um, if you start with the view that it's going to cost millions of pounds, first of all, that's the wrong view because you're clearly getting somebody else to do it for you or you're creating a whole load of projects. And, and the first principle is the, the culture will only shift if the people inside the organisation shift it. Um, the second thing is uh, we can get very bogged down with return on investment. And um, uh, let's say you're an engineering type mindset firm. Everybody wants to know the exact precise number and the value we're getting from this effort. Um, And that's why sometimes it's difficult to get going on culture work until people see some sort of intervention where they have to, because they're always default to spending a lot of time building a spreadsheet that says these are the nice KPIs and the the return on investment. Um, So I would advocate um, a mixture of quantitative and qualitative measures that give you this sense across the system of things shifting. Again, I would say focus on the leading indicators. If you are trying to get a culture of blue from a culture of red, uh, you can't just measure have we gone blue rather than red. You've got to take a look at the environment that is going to shift the red to the blue. We can't just decide tomorrow that I would like to lose 10 kilos in weight and I wake up tomorrow and I keep measuring it until something happens. I've got to do something different in my lifestyle to not just achieve that 10 kilos, but actually make it sustainable. And that's where we should be measuring. Am I only drinking skim milk instead of full fat milk now? Am I doing fitness every day rather than never? If I keep measuring those things, I will get the outcome I want. If I just keep measuring the standing on the scales every day and don't change anything I do, I won't get any lighter. So it's quantitative and qualitative measures, not heaps of them, and focus in the system. Culture is deeply ingrained 
It's about people, how they operate. How should you set a time scale for changing culture? Is this like it can happen over months or is it years and years of focus, work, evolution? A very good question. Um, and there is no hard and fast rule in my view. However, um, and, and this is where the scale question can come in, the larger the organisation, the, the, the longer it can take for messages to get out and for therefore habits to shift so it can take longer. My rule of thumb is that if you are really needing to shift a culture and really needing to shift habits, then some hard processes in the system probably need to change. And you won't get those properly changed in one turn of that set of processes. So let's take performance management. How do we incentivize and manage people such that we know they're doing the job they need to? That typically happens once a year. So if you want to really ingrain the new culture in that, you might say, right, we, we can do it in a year. Next year, when we change this system, we'll be managing people in a different way. Well, possibly, um, but certainly in some organisations I've done this in, it's taken up to three cycles. Uh, an example of one, one I worked with, the first year we, we moved into one set of performance management and we said, right, we're now putting the culture into it. And we said, tick, hurrah, we've done it. What came back was that even though we defined the culture we wanted, lots of people had written down their own culture in the performance management. So they ticked the box saying culture now is part of performance management, but hadn't followed the rules of what the culture should be. Second year, we made it a drop down box online so people couldn't pick the culture they wanted. They had to pick from the expectations. Tick, but people still weren't having proper conversations. Third year, finally, People were calibrating performance against each other depending on the level to which they performed versus that culture rather than just put it in the form. So in that case, it took three full cycles, which was three full years, to say habits had properly shifted rather than simply the signal had been given to the organisation symbolically. And when you're talking to chief executives and leadership teams, very successful, often strong-willed people, they will have a view on the culture they have set in their organisations. How challenging... Can it be to feed back to them what kind of culture they actually have in their organisations? Uh, very challenging, depending on the situation and the individual. Uh, or it can be a complete delight uh, for the same reasons. Um, quite often I'm brought in when people have realised they have a problem uh, and they're not quite sure what it is. And that problem has probably been brought to their attention by some other intervention. So first of all, they know they need to look at something. Um, and I will always start with the leadership cast the biggest shadow. So unless we are willing to look in the mirror and understand the culture that we are creating and reiterating and reinforcing, then actually there really isn't a point in starting because unless we're really clear what do we have today and we are part of that and the, probably the most impactful part of it, then let's not work. So I, you know, I probably sometimes shoot myself in the foot for business because I, the, there's no point in doing this work and starting it unless we're willing as leaders to look in the mirror. And that's the starting point. Listen to what you're saying there, Kirsty. It strikes me that one of the characteristics which might be important when changing culture is charisma on the part of the leadership. Andrew, from your perspective as a leader and Kirsty, from yours as someone who's advising leadership teams, how important do you think that 
charisma element is to the process? Well, I think it's, it's obviously very important to have clear leadership and clear vision where you're taking your organisation and where the organisation is going together. But I think absolutely what is key is to have a collaborative culture where people can lead themselves, where they are motivated to innovate and where they're motivated to work together. And that's the key to success in our business. And that's what drives our success. And uh, if I think about charisma for focusing on culture, three things um, from my point of view. Charisma can often be confused with extroversion. I I don't think charisma needs to be either extrovert or introvert. Any leader can be good no matter what their personality style is. So that's the, the first thing I would say. There isn't a type the second thing I would say in terms of having charisma for the for want of this this definition uh, to shift culture and focus on culture is that the leader must try as hard as everybody else to live out the culture. It's not for others and not them. They are part of the organisation. They are an employee. So that's really important. And the third thing I would say is charisma and culture can get confused with persuasion and shouting louder and it all being very exciting. Culture done properly, like strategy, has hard edges. This is not just a group hug. Thanks very much to Andrew Hayes and Kirsty Bassforth. Kirsty's book, Culture Shift, is published by Bloomsbury and is widely available from the usual sources. So that was the first edition of Fair and Square, the Hudson Sandler podcast, and I very much hope you enjoyed listening. You can find out more details online and you can follow us on Twitter at Hudson Sandler. But for now, until the next time, goodbye. To find out more about Hudson Sandler, our team, our culture and our thinking, visit our website, hudsonsandler.com.